our soul is still because of who you are and what you have done, but because of our trust in who you are and what you have done. Our ability to lay hold of those assurances in our hearts so that the storms of life do not blow us off course, but within them we find a settledness of our heart. We find an inner peace that comes not from ourselves, but becomes from resting in all that you are and are doing in our lives and because of our sure and certain hope. And so we pray that we would be a people who know our God and that we would continually to know you better because of our time together, because of our time throughout the week of going individually to spend time in prayer and your word and the private times and places that you give us. It's there that we come to know you and it is there that your word as we take it and seek to live consistent with your truth that we come to know that you are faithful to everything that you've said and that your way is good and right and acceptable and pure. So in that vein, Lord, we ask that even now as we prepare our hearts for your table that you would teach us as we continue to look at this message to the church, to the churches. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, open your Bibles again to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're coming again to the church of Philadelphia in verses 7 through 13. This is the sixth of the seven churches. And it is, as we know, again, one of the two churches that Christ gives no rebuke to, but gives only accommodation and a promise. The church of Philadelphia. Now, as we come to the church of Philadelphia, the church we've called it the church of the open door because that stands right at the beginning of Christ's commendation to them is that they are a church before whom he has set an open door because of their faithfulness, because of their consistency of the testimony, their testimony to him, because of their enduring persecution, because of their suffering without fail, because of the reality of life that is displayed in them. They are a faithful church. They are a church to be emulated. They are a church to learn from. And that's what we want to do as we consider them more closely. Uh, As we come to the church of Philadelphia, the promises of God are magnificent in their scope, profound in their meaning and their intention. Uh, They are also, in some ways... uh, tapping into larger promises that he makes to the church and, and actually tapping into larger discussions of how we understand the work of God both now and the work of God in the future. How we understand the work of God as it relates to Israel, as it relates to the church, as it relates to the eschaton and the end of the age, the tribulation and other things related to the return of Christ. There are much here and so we are going to go a little bit slower this morning looking at verse 9. But before we get there, let me read the passage and then we'll briefly review where we've gone and consider what he has to teach us in verse. In Philadelphia, right, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you 
from the hour of testing. That hour which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we noted that he's writing to a church who was a relatively new in the history of that area of the world and within the Roman Empire, but it was a church who had a significant position, as all of these churches were on a major postal route. They were cities. They got a lot of action. They got a lot of commerce and people and uh, traveling through and so forth. But he's addressing this church here in which there is persecution, as it is with uh, many of the churches, particularly uh, they share in some of the persecution that Smyrna themselves experienced as they knew the opposition of the Jews and the location where they were. But they were a church who was faithful, and so he begins by encouraging them with him who is holy, him who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He starts off by reminding them that he is the exalted one, and yet he is the one who is near. He is the one who provides salvation. He is the one who gives it or withholds it. He is the one who can be trusted. He is the one that they live under. And then he commends them in verse 8, saying, I know Know your deeds. And there he, he leaves it open after that. There's not something that comes after as with many of the other churches where he explains what those particular deeds are. But these are deeds that are affirmed by him as being righteous, as being true, as being acceptable, as being deeds that are to his glory and to his honor and are consistent with the truth. And then he gives what is one the first of three behold statements. You'll notice in verse 8, Behold, I have put before you an open door. Verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of, say, of Satan to eventually come and bow down to you. These are statements that are assuring them of his work in their midst. And so we noted first that, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And by saying that, we knew, or by reminding us in saying that, there are some who take this either as an open door or a statement that is connected to the end of verse 7 that says, I have set before you the certainty of entrance into my kingdom, which though you have been rejected by the synagogue of the Jews, uh, you will not be rejected by me. What I have set before you, what I have given to you, you may confidently rest in. It will come to pass that you are in the kingdom. That is the open door. The other way to take that is that an open door is here an opportunity because of their faithfulness, because of their consistency and their testimony of faith to the gospel of Christ, he is giving to them an open door of ministry, an open door of the gospel, an open door that will reach out into other surrounding regions, and that possibly tapping into their history and the, the city itself, wherein they are early on were considered a missionary city uh, by some because they became a center point for Greek culture and language and so forth to go out into the land. And, and possibly picking up on that idea and saying, not, not for Greek culture, but for the gospel, you have the opportunity to go out and be even more used for my glory and for my kingdom. And I indeed have given you this opportunity and I will bring to fruit whatever I choose choose to out of your effort. 
And while both of those ideas are ultimately included, indeed, they are a church who had received the salvation from God. They are a church who, in that sense, had been granted by Christ entrance into his kingdom, and none could take that away. They were assured of their position in Christ. They were assured of his faithfulness to them. They were assured that their future was certain. Uh, But it seems that the idea here is more likely... Uh, And how it's commonly taken, and we looked at the phrase, the open door, as it's used in the rest of the New Testament, is that he's saying here is that he who holds the sovereign, who who is sovereign over his salvation, who is sovereign over his kingdom, has provided you not only entrance into that kingdom, but also greater service and ministry within it, which will, in the end, ultimately rebound to their own reward and to their own future glory. And he says, because, that's the idea of because, you have a little power. Their little power is related not to their little spiritual power, for indeed what they are displaying is great spiritual strength through their steadfastness, through keeping his word of his perseverance and so forth. They have a little power in this sense. They have a little power in that because of their size and even because of their being the recipients of persecution, have little status, have little influence within their culture. And indeed, it may even imply as well the fewness of their numbers. They have a little power, but yet through that little power, they have a great message and a great Lord who will accomplish much through them. And he says then again, he commends them to them the reason why they have this opportunity is because they have kept, you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. And then we come now to the second behold statement in verse 9. He says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. And make them know that I have loved you. And again, this is the second use of that dramatic and that arresting behold and that that language that word translated behold some say some of your translations might have look or see or something like that and the idea is to get your attention is like this is significant it's like a shout out if you will to say listen to these words and so he says behold I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan to ultimately come to you And ultimately be shown, come to you with a recognition that you are the ones that I have loved at the end of verse 9. And the basic idea here is that he's assuring them, he's assuring these suffering Christians, this suffering church, that the way things appear now are not the way things they really are, not the way things really are, or the way things that will be in the future. In other words, reality is different than what it appears now. Your circumstances will be different in the future than what they are right now. That's the general idea. And so let's consider the way that he talks about this. One, he shows that things are not the way, are not as they appear. He calls them here the synagogue of Satan. In other words, identifying them as unbelieving Jews. And of course, these unbelieving Jews think that they are the people of God They are the chosen of God, that they are the ones who are in the favor of God, and they're persecuting these Christians who they think are not God's people. They are saying, we are the people of God, you are not the people of God, we are the favorite of God, you are not the favorite of God, and in fact, you are opposing the true people of God, and so therefore, we are going to persecute you. But he says, this is not how things really are. And so he gives two striking descriptions. The first is that they are a synagogue of Satan. They are a synagogue of Satan. This is, of course, striking. 
It is dramatic. And it is also not the first time that he used this. He used that same description, if you again remember back in Smyrna, when he said that there are Jews who are blaspheming, and in verse 9, they are in fact not true Jews, but a synagogue of Satan. They are not the true people of God. They are in fact the people of the Antichrist, the people of Satan who opposes the purposes of God. This is a striking statement. A synagogue, of course, was a place where Jews gathered to worship. As the dysphoria and when the Jews were scattered throughout the land, wherever there was a place with 11 or more men, they formed a, a synagogue, a place of worship. It was a place where they came together as the people of God to live under God and to learn of God and to identify with Him. And he's saying this synagogue, that environment, is in fact not really what it appears to be. It is in fact really a gathering of those who are under the authority of Satan. He's saying that though they bear a physical and religious similarity to a Jew, and in fact are physical descendants of Abraham, they in fact are not what was intended by God's requirement of his people as the covenant people. They were not worshipers of the God who created them and who formed them. And this language is not entirely new. Uh, not only because of Smyrna, but let me remind you of a familiar passage in Romans chapter 2. And we'll come back to this a bit later, <clears throat> some of the ideas here. But he says in chapter 2, verse 28 of Romans, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Well, of course, it is outward in the flesh. It is an actual act that's committed in the flesh. What he's saying is the, the significance of that, what that's supposed to point to, the reality that that's supposed to encompass is not merely in the outward act. It has something more. It's more profound than that. He says it's not which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but of God. Stated just simply here is to say that the true intent of the covenant, the true meaning of what it means to be of the people of God, in this case of the Jews, is to be a follower of God. And a matter of fact, that comes as a chastisement earlier, saying that you say that you're teachers of the law, you say that you're wise, but in fact, by your lives, you are bringing blasphemy on the name of God. In other words, you're saying you're the people of God, your life contradicts that, and therefore God is dishonored. He's saying that's not what it means to be the people of God. That's not what it means to be in the covenant of God. That's not what it means to be a true worshiper of God. So don't take rest in your national heritage, in your physical lineage. Instead, look at your lives. Look at what it means to be in the covenant. Look at what it means to truly be a Jew. And that is to worship the God of the covenant. That's the idea. And so he's making a distinction here, as you were pointing out, is that that was a common indictment against the people. The Jews, as they had rejected Christ, particularly, they rejected Christ because they had previously rejected God. You are not truly of God. And it's a statement then, by saying they're of the synagogue of statement, that identifies their true nature. They profess to be the God of Abraham as their father, but they are of the devil. And I'm just going to mention this briefly. It's a passage you're familiar with. We've had occasion to mention it a few times here. But he says in chapter 8, 
dramatically, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you've ever just read slowly through chapter 8 as you've gone through the Gospel of John. It's one of the most intense confrontations, one of the most intense conversations in all of Christ's ministry. It's palpable. You can emotionally feel it as you walk through this passage in terms of the tension that is in the air and the, 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 the environment in which these words are spoken. Of course, they're accusing Jesus... And they're accusing him of being false. They're accusing his person, his ministry. And he's accusing them of being outside of God's will and accusing them of wanting, in fact, to do harm to the one that God has sent, to the one who is truly representing God. And they said this, and actually what begins this conversation is Jesus making the promise that He will set people free. And they're saying, what do you mean? We're already free. We're God's people. Of course, it's kind of a ridiculous argument because they are at that point under the authority of the Roman government. But nonetheless, they miss it. And Jesus says this in verse 39, or they, the Jews said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And he says, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. In other words, you're opposing the word of God and the will of God. Abraham didn't do that, so don't call yourself children of Abraham. He says, rather, you are doing the deeds of your father. And they said, we were not born of fornication. They're accusing him and uh, referencing there his birth. We have one father, God. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceed forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. And he says, now, here's a curious situation. Why do you not understand what I'm saying to you? And he says, well, you cannot hear my word. You cannot perceive my word. Even as Jesus, of course, is saying to the churches, the one who has ears to hear. If you you have ears to hear, they're given of the Spirit, and you can perceive and understand what's being said. If not, then you won't. And he says, you don't. You don't hear my word. Why don't you hear my word? What is it? You people of God, you supposed children of Abraham, you supposed covenant people. Well, he says in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Look at that. Because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. If I spoke lies, the implication is you would believe me if I followed along with you. But I speak the truth of God. And therefore, it it contradicts your lies. And therefore, you do not believe me. And then he goes on and professes, if you convict me of sin, show me. But they could not. And he says, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Stated quite simply, Jesus is saying the same thing while he walked among the earth to those religious leaders as he's saying here from heaven to the church through the Spirit and to the angels. Namely, that you are gathering under the name that you are the people of God and yet you are not. You are, in fact, the people of Satan. And how do you know the difference? Whether you love me. That's the difference. Whether you love me, whether you serve me, whether you trust me, whether you obey me. That's the difference. Whether you accept me as the one whom God has sent into the world and the one who has in fact come from the Father, accomplished the will of the Father, and went back to the Father according to the eternal purpose of God. In the language of 1 John, to not receive that witness is in fact to call God a liar. 1 John 5. 
It is to say that God's witness toward Christ, God's testimony towards Christ, is not true and God cannot be trusted. That does not come from the Spirit of God. That comes from Satan, who began the very temptation of man in the garden with that same lie. Can God be trusted? In fact, he cannot be trusted. What he said is not true. He's holding from you. And it's the same pattern of sin throughout the history of man. And here it is with these Jews. He says, don't be intimidated by what they say. I'm going to tell you who they truly are. They are actually a gathering of Satan worshipers. They are actually a gathering of those who are doing the will of their spiritual father, of the one who has the spiritual influence in their life, and that's not God. It is of Satan. And this is really to say that all their religious identity and effort The real spiritual impulse within their system comes not from God, but from Satan. It's not the movement and the leading of the Holy Spirit, but of demons. And how important it is for us to understand this. How important it is, because it's the same not merely for the Jews, right? It's the same of every religious system, every religious gathering, every religious identity, every religious impulse either comes from the Holy Spirit or it comes from Satan, Those are the two options. Satan manipulating the natural fallenness of man. Satan manipulating the natural inborn rebellion of man to God. And the amazing thing is that it comes in the casing, in the picture, in the identity, in the the garb of religion and of worship. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? This is constant throughout Scripture. To the false teachers in Ephesus, and we could go to many places... But Jesus told Timothy that those who are forbidding marriage, those who are, who are wanting harsh treatment of, of their own body and, and denying the goodness of God in creation, they are in fact not workers of God. Do you remember? They are teaching the doctrine of demons. Exactly. They're teaching the doctrine of demons. That's demonic. It's not from God. It doesn't accord with His Word. Whatever they're saying and whatever argument they're making, it's not from God. It's not a sound use of Scripture. Again, we mention this often, but you remember in 2 Corinthians 3, he says the workers of Satan appear as angels, they appear as teachers of righteousness. And he says that's no surprise for Satan himself appears as an angel of light. Now just stop and consider that for a moment. He appears as an angel of light. He appears as an angel of light. So that means if Satan were to work among the people of God, if Satan were to have influence among the people of God, he's not going to come with a big anti-God poster. He's not going to be wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm a blasphemer. He's going to come subtly. He's going to come with a Bible. He's going to come with a winsome personality. He's going to come with certain kind of worldly credentials. And then he's going to change the message. He's going to introduce false doctrines. He's going to introduce subtle teaching that's going to have the appearance of wisdom, but in fact is going to be a lie. And that's how he works. That's how he works most effectively. Most people, the higher percentage of those who are under the influence of Satan, aren't having some seance in a graveyard somewhere at midnight around candles and whatever else they do. Most people see that as ridiculous. No, he's going to come in respectable, honorable ways that are going to be admired by people, and he's going to introduce lies. He's going to do it as a university professor. He's going to do it as a false teacher within the church. He's going to do it as an elder. He's going to do it in those ways. 
And so he's saying here that there is the reality of this religious gathering as with any that is not under the influence of God, but they are in fact under the influence of Satan. And this is, of course, throughout Scripture. Of course, it's the very beginning of Scripture. We see that work. But let me just give you one other passage in the Old Testament. Psalm 106, verse 37. Speaking here of the idolatrous worship of the nation of Israel, he says, and they served their idols, verse 36, which became a snare to them, verse 37. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Demons, when you read through the Old Testament and you read through the things that they were seduced into, it was demonic seduction. And so here he says, look, don't be fooled and don't be intimidated and don't be in any way alarmed by the fact that these Jews are persecuting you, these who say they worship God because, in fact, they are not of God. And then to drill it down even more, he says this, who say that they are Jews and they are not, but they lie. They lie. They're liars. They're liars, but they lie. How are they lying? They're lying by identifying as Jews, by identifying as the people of God, as true worshipers of God. Now, he doesn't say they know they are lying. They don't wake up in the morning and concoct the best kind of lie and deception. He's not saying that. He's saying, however, what they think about themselves is not in accordance with reality. They think something about themselves and they say something about themselves that is not true. And therefore, from God's perspective, from the perspective of reality, from the perspective of the way things actually are, they're liars because they're saying something that's not true. And that fact that they are not true is shown by their action and their deeds. In fact, this is true of people who are very sincere in religious commitment. Very sincere. Sincerity isn't the issue. Error is the issue. Being wrong is the issue. There are very many sincere people who are very wrong and deceived. Listen to the way Jesus says it in John 16 while he was still on earth. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to whom? Right, to God. Offering service to God. They're killing you... And they think they're serving God. And it's not a whole lot different than the Jews who crucified Christ. Who somehow thought they would have God's blessing after they crucified the Son of God and the Messiah. Now there they actually knew as you walk through the accounts of the trial of Christ and so forth. They knew that they weren't being honest. They were trying to trump up witnesses to bring charges. They knew they weren't following the procedure that marked righteousness and justice. Even in how they brought these matters to a verdict. They knew that. They knew when they paid Judas for a bribe and he gave them the money back that that was unrighteous money. They knew that. But somehow, the way that sin works in the mind, they could be involved with all of those things and still think that they were okay with God. Somehow still think that their Jewishness would make them okay with God. And people do that in religion all the time. All the time. And from God's perspective, he says... No, if you don't worship me, then, then you aren't my people. You aren't of me. And it's not, again, it's not just the Jews. This happens within the church. Listen just, to, just briefly. He uses the same kind of language to speak of false believers and false, false church members or attenders. He says in 1 John 1.10, you know this, he says... 
in verse 9, actually, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then he says in verse 4 of chapter 2, the one who says, I have come to know him. In other words, I am a Christian. I am born again. I am a believer in Jesus. I am counted among his people, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. In other words, again, very clearly, it's not what one says. It's not what one is convinced about themselves. It's not what one has assured themselves of. It is God's evaluation of them. It's God's criteria that tells us whether we are, in fact, the people of God. And that criteria, quite simply, is to walk in the light, to keep His commandments, to have a direction of life that keeps His commandments, that wants to obey Him. And when we don't obey Him, in which we don't, Because we are not yet in heaven, we confess our sins. And we rest again and run back again to his completed work at the cross. And remember that we are saved by grace, not by works. That we are saved by his sacrifice on our behalf. And we are motivated once again to go out and follow him. And then we fall again and we go back to the cross. And we receive forgiveness and confess our sin and travel again. And that's the pattern of life. And then we go into the church and we love the brethren. And we find ourselves being separated from the interest and the ideologies and the course of this world and our hearts more and more and our affections more and more set towards heaven, set towards eternal things. And then we go, well, then that's how I know I'm the people of God because as I live life, Christ becomes more precious to me. His word becomes more foundational to everything that I believe and how I view and conduct my life. That's how I know I'm of the people of God because I love them more. They are the saints in whom is all my delight, as David said in Psalm 16. And so he says, that's how you know, but these Jews, they're not doing that. They're actually opposing the work of God. They are of the synagogue of Satan. And so he says, don't be fooled. Things are not as they appear to be. And then he says, things are not as they will be. They aren't as they will be. So he says, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. They're liars. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Make them know so how things are, not things, or how things will be in the future. I mean, right now, the church is persecuted by the Jews. And right now, it may appear they are rejected by God, even as they mocked Christ when he was on the cross. If you're in God's favor, you know, let God save you. You're calling out for Elijah, let Elijah come and get you. If you are who you say you are, then certainly you wouldn't be suffering like this. It may appear then that the Christians and the beleaguered and the the wounded and the persecuted and the ones put to death and dragged before the courts and the ones kicked out of the synagogue are rejected by God and are the weaker ones. But God says, no, this is only temporary. It's not how it will be in the future. It's not the way things actually are now. And it's certainly not the way things they will play out to be in the future that's coming and in the day that is coming upon his return. And so he makes a promise to them and he says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and I will make them know that I have loved you. They will bow down at your feet. They will come, bow down at your feet and know that I have loved you. Know that you are the ones on whom I have set my affection. Now he says here, I will, I will make them come to you. If you go back actually to the first part of verse 9, he says, I will cause. You could, that's I will give. I will give them to you. Uh, or I will cause them to come to, uh, to come to you. 
And so he, he explains what he means by that in the second part. So the, the parallel here would be, I will give them or I will cause and I will make them come to you. What does it mean that he will give of the, from the synagogue of Satan? It is to say that I will make them come to you and bow down at your feet. And bow down at your feet. Well, now what does he mean by this? What does he mean by this? It's an incredible statement. It's an incredible statement. And there's two ways that it's generally understood. There's two ways generally that this is understood. One way is this. That he will give some of the believing Jews as a fruit of the church's evangelistic effort. That he will take those who are actually a Satan and bring them out into the same worship of God as the church whom they are persecuting. And that is the sense that it would be a promise that the Jews will recognize God's grace to the Gentiles and will themselves be moved to trust in Christ and worship God with them before their feet. That's one way. A second way is to say that he will give them in the sense of defeated enemies to recognize that it is the church, the ones they are persecuting, who are in fact the favored of God. Both the Gentiles and the believing Jews It then would be a promise that he will bring them into submission to his people under their reign and under their authority in his kingdom. And they will recognize that, in fact, the persecuted are the ones who belong to the kingdom and who are, in fact, the ones who reign with the Messiah, the true King Jesus. So those are two ways that it could be understood and that it often is understood. And because of the significance of both of those, I want it. It seemed worthy to take a little bit of time on this, as we'll have to with verse 10 next week. So what exactly then does he mean? Which one of those options is the intention of the Lord here? Well, let's take the first option first and consider it. And that is that he's saying here that God will give to them from the Jews, and those that he gives he will make to come and worship with them. In other words, recognize that the God of those who are persecuted is the true God, and the redemption that is in that God is, in fact, the true redemption, and they will worship God in Christ along with those whom they are persecuted. Well, let's take several lines of argument for that and just consider them, and then we'll consider the second one. And again, the reason to do this is not... uh, is because it taps into bigger themes and bigger realities that we want to at least uh, expose. Uh, Bigger realities that may be recognized at first glance. So first, on that statement that they will actually come and worship with those who are persecuted, what are some of the arguments? Let me give you first one. Paul states that a key motivation of his ministry to the Gentiles in Romans chapter 11 is that he wants to magnify his ministry so that in magnifying his ministry to the Gentiles, the Jewish nation will become jealous or those some from among the Jewish nation will become jealous and then turn and also become worshipers of Christ, true worshipers of God. And so the argument is that is the idea here that they will see among his work against uh, among the Gentiles and it was, it was of course include a remnant of the Jews some Jews mixed in here who aren't of the synagogue of Satan uh, that they will see the grace of God in them and become worshipers with God. However, the problem with that argument or one one difficulty with that argument is that Paul in Romans 11 while including the salvation of some Jews from the present is not that they will acknowledge some Gentile priority or worship along with the Gentiles that's not his point 
Rather, he's arguing that even now there are some Jews who are a remnant who are being saved, but his hope and his anticipation is yet for this future event when it will be all of Israel. And in fact, when that happens, which is an event yet in the future, it will be an even greater benefit to the world. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 12 of Romans 11, how much more, he says, if their sin and their failure brought about such riches of glory of salvation for the Gentiles, then he says, how much more will their salvation be? What, their salvation now and the remnant? No, that's not his argument, just the opposite. Just the opposite. He's saying now he's not paying attention to them, God. He's turned his attention elsewhere. But in the future, that will happen. And when that happens, what benefit it will be to the world, even more glorious than we can imagine. So, a second line of argument is that the worship of 3.9 pictures, again, they're coming to worship God like the unbeliever who comes into a Christian assembly in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let me just remind you of that verse. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24. And here he's talking about the chaos that comes when the wrong use of these gifts and false use of these gifts are present. And you know, people are wanting to speak in tongues and give a prophecy. And it's just chaotic. And he says God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. And so he gives instruction about when there is the true exercise of the gift, how that giftedness is to be demonstrated. And particularly a priority is given to prophecy because it's speaking forth the word of God. And he's saying when that's done, he says in verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or ungifted man comes in, he is convicted by all and he's called to account of all. In verse 25, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed so that he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. And I would just say as a footnote there, which is totally not the point of, that we're making overall here, but why the church needs to be clear on the preaching of the word and of the gospel and of Christ. No one is called to account and the secrets of their heart are revealed and they're humbled before a holy God by the silliness that goes on so much. In many of what professes to be worship. But no, in fact, when the truth of God is clearly proclaimed and God is held up, then it calls the sinner to, center to account. And the truth of their heart or the secrets of their heart are revealed and they're called to repentance. They're called to repentance. And so they say then, some who, are not, who, who hold to that position, that this is in fact them coming to worship, that that is just like that. It's like, it, like the unbeliever who comes into the assembly, so it will be with them. However, one difficulty with that is that the worship there is taking place with the church and here in Revelation is taking place with a priority to these mostly Gentile believers at their feet. At their feet. It's a different scenario. He's not saying that they're going to come worship with you. He's going to says they will bow down at your feet. So that's different. So it's hard to make an exact parallel there. A third line of argument is some see a connection between Isaiah 60.11 and Revelation chapter 21. So let's just briefly remind you. In Isaiah chapter 60, he says this, the prophet Isaiah does. Isaiah 60 verse 11, he says, speaking of this future glory of Jerusalem, this future glory of Israel, this future glory of Zion, of a redeemed people, the Jewish people, he says... In verse 11, your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nation and their king, with their kings led in procession. 
Verse 12, for the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish and the nations will be utterly ruined. And then he goes on. He says at the end of verse 13, and I shall make the place of my feet glorious. I shall make the place of my feet glorious. In Revelation 21, there is in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the connection uh, for this particular argument. Uh, in verse 21, where he says this in verse, or chapter 21, verse 24, And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no nights. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and so forth. And nothing unclean will go in there. And so this is a glorious truth and a glorious promise. However, in Isaiah, the tribute is being brought essentially to God's people to a restored, glorious uh, restitution of the glory of, the nation, or of Zion and of Jerusalem. In the book of Revelation, it's being brought by the redeemed to God Himself. All of the nations being brought to God Himself of the redeemed in this new city. So it's difficult to see an exact parallel there. It is true both there's bringing of glory, but they're bringing it, different people bringing it, into a different end. So it's difficult to make that an exact parallel, uh, it seems. And number four, and this is where most significant argument for this comes from this, that there is a direct link with the Old Testament promises concerning Israel. What Old Testament promises? Well, let me give just a few. And again, we'll be in the book of Isaiah. So in Isaiah, and I'm just going to read these to you and then we'll consider them. In the book of Isaiah, he says this. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 14, he says, Thus says the Lord, The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, will come over to you. He's speaking again of a glorified and redeemed Israel. A glorified and redeemed Israel, where God again turns his saving intentions to them will come to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. In chapter 49, he says this. In verse 22, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings, in verse 23, will be your guardians and their princes, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet, and you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Your persecutors will become your defeated enemies. Your persecutors will become your defeated enemies. One more passage. In Isaiah chapter 60. In Isaiah chapter 60. And again, we'll start in verse 13 and read to 16. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, and the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I shall make the place of my feet Glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride. 
a joy from generation to generation. You will also suck the milk of the nations and suck the breast of kings. And then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And so the argument is then, these passages given by the prophet, given by God through the prophet Isaiah, is looking to this future Israel. This future Israel where their fortunes will be restored. And no longer will they be despised of the nations, but they will be honored among the nations. No longer will they be at the behest of the nations who persecute them. They will, in fact, suck of the wealth and of the benefit of the nations. They will be shown to be the people of God. And so the argument is now, in this striking and bitter irony, those promises are reversed. They are flipped upside down. And the argument now is that those were promises that were to Israel, where Israel took those and held themselves to be preeminent among the nations, are now Israel is at the bottom. And in fact, they are going to be the ones that are coming to worship the God that was believed by the Gentiles, their own Messiah. And so that's the argument. Just two quick statements on that of why that's difficult to make that the connection with Christ's words here, even though the language of a reversal is certainly there, is that it makes the promises given originally of no meaning. Not only does it make them of no meaning, it makes the meaning opposite of what the promise was. That's a significant issue. That's a significant hermeneutical issue. Does it mean the opposite? Is he making a promise to redeemed Israel that now isn't a promise to redeemed Israel, but is actually just the opposite of that? Is a humbling of redeemed Israel? That's a significant, significant issue. And also, when that argument is made, it tends to fail to realize that the promises that he's making there through the prophet Isaiah are to an Israel who is restored, an Israel who is redeemed, not to an apostate Israel, not to an unbelieving Israel. So it's not to the believing or the apostate Israel who held those promises to be that we are the exalted and why they had a wrong uh, impression of their Messiah, what he would be, an unhumbled Israel, an is- a disobedient Israel, an Israel who would clean the outside of the act but had not replaced it with true repentance. And therefore, to use the illustration of Jesus, seven other demons came and infested them so that their hardness and their, 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 their distance from God spiritually was even greater than before. He's talking to a redeemed Israel. And so it's difficult then to say that in reading that, somehow a redeemed Israel is going to have that promise somehow reversed on them, and it's going to be the exact opposite of what they said through the prophet Isaiah. You see the challenge? It's a challenge. That's difficult to take it there. It's difficult to say that we now have turned everything upside down. So what is then the relationship here? What is then the relationship here? What is the relationship particularly between Israel as the covenant nation and those promises? What is the relationship between Israel as a covenant nation, the church that is made up of believing Jews and mostly Gentiles, and the future plans for the nation of Israel? How are we to understand all of that and put that together? And how are we to understand that with the promise that is given here? That becomes a significant issue. And certainly one that's going to be far more in detail than we'll get into, but I'll try to at least cover the main issues and some of the main points. 
Well, first of all, we acknowledge that the church includes Jew and Gentile as participants of the new covenant blessings. Of the new covenant blessings. He says in many places, but and extensively in the book of Ephesians, that this is the mystery revealed. This is the glory revealed. That this promise of the new covenant, which came to the Jews and was rejected by them, which was then extended to the Gentiles, formed a new people of both believing Jews who are the remnant and Gentiles into the body of Christ, who are together indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who are together identified as the people of God, who are together recipients of all the privileges and the spiritual blessings that are in Christ, and who together worship God in spirit and in truth. And so he says to them, as he's explaining this in Ephesians chapter 2, remember that you formerly the Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words... Israel is the one and the Jews through whom God had given his covenant, through whom he had given his promises, and through whom the Messiah came, and through whom he accomplished his redeeming work. Some of the Jews were, had received that message, but they, and many rejected it, but they nonetheless were the vehicle through which God was bringing his salvation. There were certainly Jews that attached themselves to Israel. Those were proselytes. Some are even in the lineage of Christ. They are certainly, there were certainly Jews who were true worshipers of the God of Israel. But he's saying you as a people, as a Gentile and as the nations were outside of, you were alienated. You mostly were outside of where God was working redemptively. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in, he, in himself he might make the two into one new man, establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God. That is to say, this people that are from the nation of Israel, this covenant nation of Israel, through whom these promises came, they are going to worship God in spirit and in truth and worship their Messiah. Also, that promise is now extended out to the Gentiles with the same promise of salvation, the same promise of redemption, just as Paul said to the Romans, he is the God of Jews and the God of Gentiles. And by faith, they come, the Gentiles come in together into this new and glorious reality of the new covenant being found in Christ, experiencing his redemption, the same access to God, the same worship of God, the same promises of God, they experience it on equal footing. There is not a priority of the experience of this grace. In fact, that is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There's neither Jew or Gentile, male or female, barbarian, Scythian, so on and so forth. They're all together. His point there is not that those distinctions don't exist, There wasn't a transgender issue in Galatians 3.28. The point is this. You knew I had to say that. I'm sorry. It's not in my notes, but I couldn't resist. The point is this, right? Because that's been misused many times. The point is this. 
The point is that everybody now equally has this access to God. They're on equal footing with God. They have equal privileges and benefits of the new covenant in Christ. Not that those distinctions don't exist. Not that there isn't male and female. Not that there isn't free and slave. Not that there isn't Jew and Gentile. But those distinctions have no bearing on the salvation that is offered in Christ. That's the point. That there is this one people of God. And so that's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. And we're going to have to end it here and pick it up. But he says this. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away. Peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you... That you here would be the Gentiles who were excluded from the covenants and excluded from the promises. You no longer are strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom also you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Every dividing line has been removed. Every barrier has been removed. There is no privileged status in the world anymore. That the gospel goes out to all of the nations, every tribe, nation, and tongue, and all who receive the message of Christ are brought into the glorious benefits of Christ and His saving work into all of the redemptive accomplishments of Christ, into all of the promises of Christ, and everything that God has guaranteed in Christ. He's saying that's free to all. And so it does, the church, include those who are believing among the Gentiles and among the Jews. And this, in fact, was anticipated in the Old Testament, that Jews and Gentiles would worship God together. Indeed, that was very, in the very essence of the Abrahamic covenant. You will be a light to the nations. You'll be a light to the nations. Through you, my salvation is going to come. And the nations, ultimately, the intention is, will come to your light. Now, that's going to happen because God would do it. They never fulfilled that as they should. But they are going to come to your light, and they are going to worship you. Again, as Paul said, God is the God of Jews and Gentiles. He's the God of all who bear his image. That was anticipated. There's some other passages we'll look at down the road. However, and I'm going to throw this out there, and this is what we'll talk about more and try to gain some clarity on and look at the passages that talk about it. By saying that God's ultimate purpose was to include both the nation he would form as a covenant nation, the nation of Israel, who would be the physical descendants of Abraham, but who would have ultimately as the end of that covenant, the intention of that covenant, a spiritual reality of knowing their covenant God and walking with him, in obedience and in truth and righteousness and in holiness and in faithfulness of having the law of God written on their heart. Even though that he would choose them as that nation, the intention always was to include all men in this glorious work of salvation and the worship of him who is the God of them all. And even though... He gave the privilege and the pride of place to the nation of Israel through whom all of these promises were come. They, consistent with their history, rejected God's salvation ultimately as a nation as a whole. And so therefore God is extending himself out to the Gentiles. But now the question becomes, 
even though this was anticipated and now there is the one church of God, does that eliminate those promises to the Jews? Or does it blend them all together? Does it make all of a sudden this equivocation? Now Israel is the church and the church equals Israel. Does it mean that there are no other purposes for God and that even though this work of bringing Jew and Gentile together has removed all distinctions of his promises? That's the question that takes up so much time and ink of writers. Well, we'll attempt to answer that and it's important to answer that in terms of how we understand what he's saying here and how we can fit all of that together into the message of Christ to this church and actually as we go through Revelation. And so... We'll have to look at that next week. And so this is somewhat of a series within a message. <laughs> because there are some big issues that are coming out of here. And there will be as well when we look to verse 10 about the wrath of God that is coming upon the world. What does that mean that the church will be spared from that or this church? So big issues and we'll take a little bit of time to look at them uh, as we go through. And no doubt engender a lot of discussion uh, among us. But that's healthy and good. It sharpens our mind. But what I would want to emphasize here as we come into the table is this, the saving work of Christ. That he has called us out of darkness into light. And that we all, by the sovereign work of God, who have been made partakers of his grace in Christ, come to the table as worshipers. And that ultimately is the end of it all, isn't it? That everyone who believes in Christ comes to the feet of Christ, comes to the table as those who cling to him for our salvation as our hope. That we together as the people of God, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, weak and strong, all who come to Christ and trust in Him, all who come to Christ burdened with their sin, regardless of their background, regardless of their sin, have in Him redemption, the forgiveness of sin, and access to God, and a reconciled relationship in which there's fellowship, hope, ultimate purpose, and that is to be with him and to serve his purposes in this world. And that's what the table reminds us of. And so as we meditate on those things and you consider your own life, let's prepare our hearts as the men come and we'll remember the Lord and his salvation in the table. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we realize when we come to your word that we are privileged to have eyes open to understand the truth. And yet we also realize with deep humility that you are infinite in your knowledge and wisdom. And not everything in your word, though glorious and though designed to bolster our hope and strengthen our faith, is easy to understand. There are mysteries that are revealed and there are mysteries that remain. And so help us as we walk through this passage to find ultimately, ultimately, the joy and the glory and the certainty of our being reconciled to you through Christ, of our belonging to you in the family of God, of our sharing together one Father, one faith, one Lord, one hope, and one baptism that we equally delight in and rejoice in, even as we do coming to your table. So fill our hearts with your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen.